This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life. With premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Thank you for choosing us to listen to. I have Brian Stelters on the show today. He's uh, the host of Reliable Sources on CNN. He has a book called Hoax, The Untold Story of Trump and Fox News. This thing is a page turner, guys. It's so informative. Just to get the whole context of Fox News and perspective and the fact that the president of the United States gets his, basically his policy from these two cent news anchors. I mean, it's crazy. And it wouldn't be so crazy if it wasn't true. I mean, the fact that it is true is nuts. But if there's any book that you need to read before the election, um, hoax, the untold story of Trump and Fox News. Brian really did a good job. I'm a big fan of Brian. I've watched his show with Reliable Sources for a long time. He always has some good info. So he's on the show. I talked to him uh, the other day. I'm recording this on a Saturday, actually. Been so busy and everything. But I wanted to make sure I'm still checking in with you guys. Remember, my new show on Peacock is coming out. And by the way, guys, if you haven't downloaded Peacock, just download Peacock on your phone. It's free. Download it on your phone, on your iPad, whatever device you have, your your smart TV, whatever. There's really a lot of good stuff in it. I know I am hawking it right now because I am on it. I understand that. And that's usually not a relationship that I do say commercials, but my show is going to be on Peacock. So you guys got to get Peacock. You got to get the app. Okay. Look, let me put it like this. Just for the fact that Peacock has all the Columbo episodes alone is a reason to have Peacock. Enough said. All right. But uh, Wilmore, which is the name of my show, and the Amber Ruffin show is, you know, the Peacock late night staple right now. So it's very exciting, guys. We premiere on September 18th. Um, very excited about it. The news is, I think, dropping official this week about our premiere date. And it's going to be nice to get back in front of the camera and talk about some of these issues. And I just want to say thanks to everybody that's given so many kind words of encouragement. And Larry, we're glad you're back and all that kind of stuff. People have been so nice. Like There's a tagline that uh, we were coming up with that really is tied to the election. It's like election 2020. Let's get this shit right this time is the tag. But, you know, I was just tweeting that out to people, saying, hey, guys, watch my new show, Wilmore. Let's get this shit right this time. And people were so nice. They're like, no, Larry, you got it right last time. Your show was good. And I'm like, I'm, thanks, guys. But I was really talking about the election. I wasn't saying, oh, I fucked up my show last time. Let's get it right this time. But this is what I'm talking about, you guys. I have great fans. You guys are out there protecting me. And don't think I don't appreciate that. That's some good. That's some good stuff. So thank you for that. Appreciate all of that. And Wilmore, by the way, it's like a 10, 11 week kind of special series kind of put in to both cover the election and have some honest conversations about what's happening in our culture. That's what we're going to be doing. And I'm excited to get to talk about that kind of thing I do here on the podcast. Very interesting week. We had the Republican convention this week, just the circus of that. It's just, especially in COVID, it's just so bizarre. I don't even know if I need to unpack that for you guys. I'm sure if any of you watched it, 
I was kind of concerned with what I I kind of t- <laughs> I kind of tweeted out. I was concerned about all the black men who were sticking up for Trump. I said, "What is this gaggle of niggas coming out supporting Trump? What's going on here? Why, why are there so many of them?" And I kind of joked about it, but guys, I'm concerned about this, and I will be covering it on Wilmore on Peacock, by the way, on Friday nights. I'm concerned that there is kind of this. Let's I'll call it a suppression of votes, you know. And what I mean by that, I, I'm not going to unpack all of it today, but I will be talking about it in a few weeks, is I think Republicans would really like it if Black people don't get out to vote in big numbers, kind of like what they did in 2016. And even though I think it is unfair to blame that election on Black people, and it was not our fault, by the way, but they know that that can possibly make a difference in some key areas, especially if there's not a huge support for Joe Biden from the Black vote in key areas. Remember, this is the Electoral College. So we'll see what's going to happen. But this recruitment of black men to stand up for Trump, I don't know what the fuck is going on with that, you guys. And it's just really worrying me. Like, is there, like, how deep is this, is this, is this uh, penetration going on? And uh, I'm going to keep my eye on it and I'm going to report on it to you. And there's some Facebook shit going on that I don't like too some disinformation campaigns, but we're going to, I'm going to keep my eye on it for you guys. And we're going to be talking about that coming up. So I don't have a lot to say about that convention. The fact that Trump chose to do his speech at the white house is just ridiculous. It's just another example of how he really doesn't give a shit about blatantly breaking the law in front of the American people, the hatch act in that sense, in that case, you know, he's just so obvious a con man to me. It's just uh, infuriating. Now we have the horse race and we're going to see what's going to happen, right? And at this point in the election, uh, the Democrats are running what I call a cynical campaign. And I've talked about this before. And these are my own terms. What I mean by a cynical campaign, a cynical campaign is when you're not running for something, you're running against something. And right now, the Democrats are basically running against something and that something is Trump. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. I think it's very hard to win a cynical campaign. Not many cynical campaigns win, but some do. Um, In this case, if you're going to run a cynical campaign against something, why not against Trump? But it's very hard to get people excited about cynical campaigns. People like to vote for something more than they like to vote against something. That's just human nature. But in this case, the against something is is such such a horrible thing. People are actually voting for something in that case. Um, But we'll see. I feel like I'm hoping the Democrats don't do themselves in and that sort of thing. I saw AOC speaking on a show about Joe Biden where, you know, she had supported Bernie and all that. And the way that she described how Democrats should support Biden, it was so like, I do not like this man at all, but I guess we got to do it. It was so bad. It was so bad because it's like, can't you show a little bit of enthusiasm, just even if you're faking it at least? I mean, it's just a couple of months to show this enthusiasm, you guys. But we'll see what's going to happen. This is going to be interesting. This is going to be interesting. And I hope in a good way. I'm saying it. We're either going to apocalypse or apocalypse. One of those things is going to happen. Um, and I hope the apocalypses and not lipses. That's what I'm hoping. So another thing I'll be talking about in my Peacock show, we're going to talk about protests and that type of thing. Sports world is doing a lot of it right now. And I've talked a little bit about this and they kind of ramped it up this week with the shooting of Jacob Blake, the young man in, in Kenosha. 
um, that really was disturbing for a lot of people. It's really disturbing because these things are on video and you see them and it just seems like ridiculous. And he didn't die. He was paralyzed and they even handcuffed him to the bed. This whole situation is just nasty. It's just not good. And it really kind of, uh, it really seemed to affect uh, the sports world even more so. Basketball players were thinking about quitting and not doing the season. And once again, it's kind of magnified the feelings around this, you know. And, you know, my point of view on this, too, is I want to make sure that all that stuff is fine, you know, and the demonstration of that from our sports world. But I just want to keep this in perspective. You know, if there's I feel like if there's direct action from some of these things, it's fine. But a lot of it does get performative for me. And I know I'm being a cynical asshole when I'm talking about this. I get it. Nobody really agrees with the other. So I'm kind of in the wilderness on this, but that's okay. I don't mind. I'll be in the wilderness for you guys. I really don't mind. If you guys get mad at me for talking about this, that's okay too. Cause we're boys. That's okay. But this is, I just get a little, you know, I just want to make sure that there's something else at play there. That's all. But I'm going to be keeping my eye on that and talking about that both here and there. I think that's it. You know, we're at the start right now. The election officially starts right now. We'll see what's going to happen in these debates. Biden really needs to take control and acquit himself now of really being a leader. And I'm going to put the onus on him. Even though I was talking about AOC, the onus is not on her. I'm going to put the onus on Biden to rally the troops and make sure people people are, are fucking excited about him as they should be, you know. So we'll see what's going to happen. All right. We got Brian Stelter coming up. His book, Hoax, The Untold Story of Trump and Fox News, coming right up. All right. Welcome back. Uh, what a treat, man. Nice to have this this gentleman, this young man on my show. Oh, I don't feel very young anymore, Larry. Oh, no, you are. I start I start my Sundays off with his show, Reliable Sources. He's such a lover of television, showbiz and news and all that stuff. And it really comes across <laughs> in his show, his, his joy for all of that. It really does. But he's got a new book out called Hoax, The Untold Story of Trump and Fox News. It is unbelievable, guys. I'm about halfway through and it's fantastic. Brian Stelter, welcome to Black on the Air. Thank you so much. I am grateful that you are a Reliable Sources viewer. Oh, absolutely. But I've been one from when you, you know, first started that stuff. I've been following you for a while. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I came over straight (laughs) from the New York Times and nobody taught me television. So I've just been teaching myself. I think that's good sometimes. You know, you kind of bring (laughs) your own approach. But you instantly brought, you could tell you were a fan of what you were covering. And there was like an affection for it at the same time. But you were still like, you were very thorough with the things too. I always appreciated that. Well, you know? I've always been obsessed with TV. Like I yeah. think since I was like seven years old, obsessed with TV news. I'm the kid that slept on the couch, you know, on election night and that sort of thing. Right. And in some right. ways, I've been covering Fox News for 16 years. So wow. this book just poured out of me when I started to work on it. But yeah. you're right. It, it's I think it's important to have an appreciation for what you cover, mm-hmm. but a a desire to want it to be better. So in my case, in this industry, the news industry, you know, yeah. I want to push for it to be better and have higher standards and have, have more accountability. Uh, but deep down inside, I also respect it and, and want to defend it. When someone yeah. like President Trump calls us the enemy, you know, yeah. you want to defend your colleagues too. Yeah. And definitely want to get to all that. You know, I'm struck by your title to hoax, which 
It's, you know, that word, and you unpack it a little bit too in your book, but it is a very powerful word, especially when spoken by the president about something, which has been always underreported, the words that the president chooses to use as the president. I, I, well, let's say it's underappreciated by the people because he does it so much. Yes, yes. You know, I won't say it's underreported, but I'll say it's, uh, it's under dealt with, I guess, you know. Yeah, or, yeah I, I don't think we spent enough time unpacking the, the impact yeah. of a word like hoax. He started yeah. saying it, uh, well, he actually started saying it 10 years ago about global warming. That's but right. more recently in the context of the Russia probe and then other mm-hmm. stories he didn't like. And now he says it on average more than once a day. And I think yeah. that has really poisonous consequences. And, and I think you're, you're on something about the media, which is when we just quote him and then we move on, mm-hmm. we don't pause to say, you know, that poison is sinking deeper into the bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because Trump, I don't consider him a leader. I don't know what, and when I mean leader, I mean like hoax isn't his word, you know, like that was kind of. The right kind of came up with that as a way to combat climate change, I think, was they started using the word hoax years ago as a defense mechanism, I guess, you know, that the way that the left was presenting it. I they, I don't think they could deny that it was happening, but there was the, the presentation was a hoax, you know, according to the right, you know. And so Trump has adopted that in his dealing with news in general, that everything that doesn't support him is hoax. Right. He, he, he wants to present this notion that everything could be a hoax and you don't know what is real and you don't know what to believe. Yeah. I take inspiration from uh, this author named uh, Peter uh, Pomerantsev, who wrote the book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And that was about Russia. He was describing Russia under Vladimir mm-hmm. Putin. But that title feels real to me in the United States now that, oh, well, Trump is saying nothing, nothing's really true. And everything's possible now. Yeah. And the reason we went with hoax to this title, uh, originally the book was going to be called Wingmen because mm-hmm. I thought of, I thought of Sean Hannity and Laura sure. Ingram as Fox's wingmen. But when the pandemic uh, blew up, you know, our lives and, and mm-hmm. um, the, it, Trump used the word once Hannity used the word once in connection to the virus. And it was clear that, you know, all this rhetoric and all this right wing chatter on Fox mm-hmm. was actually hurting people. Like you could actually it really see was. it yeah. in the testimonies of families who said, my loved ones believed Fox and now they're in the ICU. Yeah. And it seemed like, and the reason why I brought it up earlier, because before it was kind of a game, there's really no consequences to calling climate change a hoax and all that. But there's mm. a consequence when the president called this virus a hoax, you know, and, uh, it's interesting that when, when did you first uh, start writing this book? Because it's funny how hoax and all that and this clarifying idea probably came as you were finishing the book, it I would did. think. Yeah, it, it, it did. I mean, as, as a writing story, um, I, I always find it's really easy for me to report. It's mm-hmm. really hard for me to write. I love to report. I love taking sources out for coffee or for drinks. You know, I love getting them to trust me. You know, that, that process is fun and pretty easy. And then it's very hard to figure out how to structure the chapters and how to tell the story and how to end right. it. Uh, yeah. but, but in this case, you know, the pandemic sadly um, became the biggest story in the world. Mm-hmm. The administration's failures and, and Fox's downplaying of the disease became the biggest media story on, on the beat. And so it was clear I had to open the book with the pandemic story and end the book with the pandemic story. And then in between, tell how Trump hijacked Fox News. 
Although I don't know, know if hijacked is the right word because they went along willingly. Um, seduced, maybe? I and mean, we can come up with the better, the better term. It was kind uh, of I can a, keep writing this as we speak. It could have been a blind date, you know, that just, <laughs> you know, it's mutual attractive. But that, it is fascinating. And uh, you start with the etymology and everything. Let's, let's talk a little about the evolution of Fox News because I think it is important, and I'm glad that you do it, to give people the context for how Fox even appeared on the scene and right. kind of what their early mission statements were, because I think it's important to understand how that's evolved through the years. Right? Fair and balanced was, of course, the very cynical slogan mm-hmm. at the heart of Fox News <laughs> right. in 1996. Yeah. Uh, fair and balanced, which, you know, right away, it's a combative statement. It's saying the others are not fair and are not balanced and that you're going to fix what's broken. That's the message from Roger Ailes in the 90s. But there's also a grain of truth to that statement. I, I think... Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people at Fox would say there were a lot of grains of truth. There's a whole mountain of truth there that, sure. that the, a lot of the media outlets lean to the left and that the broadcast networks, you know, uh, had leadership lean to the left. And, and Roger Ailes wanted to balance that out. I think Bernie Goldberg uh, had a book called Bias at the bias, time and yeah. things like that, that I thought was actually really good observations about what was happening in the media yeah. I think those media bias critiques, while um, sometimes uncomfortable for the people mm-hmm. on the other side, uh, were, were rooted in reality. Mm-hmm. We've moved so far from arguments about bias into arguments now about hatred, meaning when someone calls you their enemy, when someone says the media hates you, is out to get you, is out to hurt you, pull a hoax, c- commit a hoax on you, that's about hatred. That's about venom. That's about otherness. That's about demonization. We're so far beyond legitimate conversations about media bias at this point. Trump has dragged us into this place where now it's about um, hatred of media. And that's, that's, that's a very, very damaging thing. But at the start of Fox, it was about, you know, trying to provide a, um, an alternative to the rest of the media. And I think what happened at Fox is over the years, they kept taking these turns to the right. Hmm. It, partly in response to the audience, partly in response to mm-hmm. what the GOP was doing, partly uh, in response to marketplace concerns. You know, Catching so, up a little bit to the right-wing radio that was happening at the time, was, which was further right than the network, right? That's a very good point. The, mm-hmm. Fox is a more mainstream version sure. of what happens on talk radio. And sometimes, you know, you get these conspiracies that start on the radio and then they gravitate to Fox News and then the rest of the world hears them. But under Roger Ailes, and, and Larry, I hate to say this because Roger Ailes was an abuser of women. He was a tyrant. He mm-hmm. misused company expenses. He, he has all sorts of sins on his record that are easily Googleable. But at least he was firmly in command of the channel. Mm-hmm. And what I kept hearing from sources after Ailes was forced out and after he died in 2017 was that it felt like nobody was in charge at Fox anymore. Mm-hmm. And that as a result, Trump was basically in charge because nobody was in charge. And people said that the channel was sliding into this propaganda you know, um, situation, this, this becoming a form of propaganda because there wasn't a strong leader. Mm-hmm. So if you say one good thing about Roger Ailes, it's that at least he was in command of the channel. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I had to write the book is so many people at Fox now are basically shouting, like not shouting, but they're confiding in me. They're, they're spilling their guts out to me saying, this place has really devolved. Yeah. And of course, your main protagonist in this is Sean Hannity, who's had his own road to this relationship, which is kind of odd. And a big turning <laughs> point, and this was an obvious one, everybody could kind of see, was the Obama election, where Fox then repositioned itself, not as this fair and balanced type of entity, but kind of a anti, uh, like this voice in the wilderness for people who 
you know, we're pushing against the Obama administration for yes. a number of reasons. But yes. Fox gladly opened their arms and let all of those reasons be a part of that cry in the wilderness, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, the, the way I say it in the book, you know, you I'm, have being to, fa- I'm being very fair right now. You, yes, yes. I think you're being delicate. I think you're being yes. delicate. Uh, the, the, you know, the, the way I say it in the book hmm. uh, is something to the effect of um, uh, a black president is elected. Right. A woman becomes House Speaker. Yes. And all of a sudden, these stars on Fox <laughs> and all of a sudden, these Tea Partiers say, stop spending my money. Like there, there are obvious connections there. You know, the promotion of the Tea Party on Fox, I think, is a real forerunner to the promotion of Trump. Um, there's these researchers at Harvard who describe it as a, um, uh, they, they talked about Fox in, in this way, that they, what they were doing with the Tea Party was they were being a social movement orchestrator. So they were spreading the word about the Tea Party. They were cheering it on. Uh, they were they were helping create the social movement. And I think uh, uh, in some ways that was a, like a preview of what they were doing with Trump years later. And they were kind of, at that time, I remember uh, Sarah Palin became one of their stars for a while. You know, she was kind of representing a little bit of that after, you know, the failed election or whatever. But, and it was kind of tied at that point, as I recall, they were it, they were really kind of presenting themselves as culture warriors. You know, you talk yes. about O'Reilly's yeah. War on Christmas and that type of thing. Yeah, more so than politics, it seemed like, or policy, right? That, that's an interesting distinction. It, I think, yeah, b- back then in the Obama years, it, it is it is about culture war issues. I, I would say, going one level deeper, more subconsciously, it's about protecting and preserving white Christian America. Mm-hmm. Um, against a, an increasingly multicultural country led by a black president. That's, you know, you're, you're never going to hear a host on Fox say those words, but that's the narrative that they are uh, about. Mm-hmm. And, but you know what? Back then, the stakes were not that high. And the reason I say that is it wasn't like Obama was getting advice from MSNBC. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like right, the right. country was being run by a shadow cable news government. In fact, there were times when uh, John Boehner would talk to Roger Ailes or other mm-hmm. GOP lawmakers who had power at the time would talk to Ailes and Ailes would say, don't, don't worry about O'Reilly and Hannity. Don't worry. Do what you're going to do. Don't worry about what they're going to say about it. And now we're in this upside down world where Hannity and Tucker and others are, are so deeply embedded and so involved in what's actually happening in the government. And it's interesting that, so Trump's first, the birth of his relationship with Fox News was uh, <laughs> kind of an Obama, yeah, and it's ironic because it was birtherism that yes. <laughs> kind of started his uh, relationship with them. So was it, I never watched Fox and Friends, so, but he started on Fox and Friends, is was what you're saying? Uh, like yes. he had a regular segment on there? Did it he was start called- by... He used to just call in, but they decided that, you know, he needs to be in here regularly. Is that how it went? <laughs> yeah, we're going to brand it Monday mornings with Trump. Uh-huh. I think this I think this is a weekly phone call that changed the course of American politics because, wow. you know, look, I know The Apprentice gets a lot of credit and blame for yeah. uh, building up Trump as a as a as a um, as a business leader, making him appear to be a business leader. What Fox and Friends did is it taught him what what the right wing wanted. It taught mm-hmm. him about politics. Right. Because I, I guess think about it this way: as if a salesman, you, he had to know what people wanted to buy so he yes, could sell. Yes, right? he, he needed uh-huh. to know Roger Ailes' priorities. He mm-hmm. needed to know Fox's priorities, and mm-hmm. he got to know the people who became his voters 
through mm-hmm. these phone calls to Fox and Friends. You know, back then he was always ticked off that people didn't take his political dreams seriously. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, he he would flirt about running for president and no one would really even write about it or take it seriously. Yeah. And and what Fox and Friends gave him was this direct connection to the conservative base. Wow. It's so fascinating because But none of us really realized it at the time, right? Because yeah. he was just calling in to to complain about whatever culture war story there was that day. Yeah, he was like the black sheriff, as far as I'm concerned, you know, that's always on Fox News. Oh, right, <laughs> <Yeah>. right. <laughs> you know, just another voice. What do you think was, so what was the turning point when Trump starts to realize that he has uh, presidential ambitions? And do you think that Ailes had anything to do with that? Like, Ailes as the kingmaker is kind of what he is in this book as well, right? I did. I probed that. I wanted to know how involved Ailes was in the decision to run. And, you know, the people who worked with him at the time say he liked to have lots of people out in the field running for president, um, running for the GOP nomination, Mm -hmm. because he liked to try people out and test people on his own air. So he Mm -hmm. was careful not to get behind a candidate too early in the race. For example, he was, you know, he was a Bush guy at heart. He worked in the Bush White House, uh, the Bush Mm -hmm. uh, 41 White House. He worked for George H.W. Bush. So he he actually was, he had, uh, he had personal support for Jeb Bush. He was, you know, kind of pro-Jeb to some extent in the primaries. Um, but he recognized Trump's appeal and Trump's ratings you know, power very early on. And, and Ailes could feel the audience rooting for Trump, pulling for Trump, mm-hmm. um, backing Trump. And that definitely affected his decision-making. You know? But I think in terms of getting into the race, um, it is clear that Trump was planning it for months because he hired people like Hope Hicks early in 2015, mm-hmm. ahead of that June launch. And if you go back and look at his interviews on Fox in 2015, it's, it's almost like he's planting hints and planting seeds that he's going to mm-hmm. sow later. Because he in these but, interviews, yeah. the idea of him running for president comes up pretty bluntly, which I, I think is really striking because so many people were surprised he actually did it that day. Yeah, I agree. Because there was ridicule that surrounded it, you know, yeah. just the thought of it and that sort of thing. Because everybody knew he was a boaster and all that. Nobody took it seriously. And I honestly felt that why would he give up a position where he could be this voice in the wilderness with no accountability, you know, and get all this attention? Totally. But you're and, making me think yeah. of one of my favorite quotes in the book. I just pulled it up. It's on page 53. There was this moment on the day Trump entered the race mm-hmm. where he was criticized quite a bit on Fox. He was, you know, Dana mm-hmm. Prino was on there saying, you really think he's going to get Mexico to pay for a wall? Like there mm-hmm. was pushback. But then at the end of the segment, this guy, Greg, Greg Gutfeld, who I think of as kind of one of the jokesters, one of the jesters mm-hmm. on the show. Right, he's on the five. He yeah. says to the, 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 the colleagues on the five, he says, he did, Trump did ISIS, Trump did Obamacare in the speech, Trump did immigration, Trump did Bo Bergdahl. And then Greg says, he did our show's rundown. In other mm. words, the speech Trump gave was like a version of an episode of the five. Like it was a Fox News speech. Wow. And I think that's absolutely true. Yeah, Trump was hitting all the buttons that he had been taught about by Fox yeah. and Friends. He was touching on all the themes that conservative voters hear about every day. And I think one of my regrets about covering the 2016 election is I didn't understand how well Trump understood the Fox audience. I almost have to give Trump more credit. <laughs> you know, begrudgingly so, where he took this model of this entity where there was this certain rock solid base that wasn't going anywhere, you know, and you spend time talking about that Fox base, you know, it's fascinating yeah. how, 
you know, when you just look at the raw numbers and everything of the Fox audience, and they're not going anywhere, as you point out, they're not grazers, they're gorgers, as you, that's what you say in your book, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, and it's a very important distinction, how loyal that audience is. And for him to say, that's going to be my voting base. Do you think he made, do you think it was an accident or he really made that connection? I don't ever like to try to claim that I can get into his head. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to give him too much credit because I don't think he's a brilliant Machiavellian. I think he's a, I look, he's done well. The thing that Trump does the best is to boast. He's done it in all area of his life. You know, sometimes the boasting might be true, might be not. We don't know. We never know. But he, but boasting is the way he's done it. He was a fight promoter, you know. That's how he, that was his relationship to the USFL, to buying the palace or whatever it was, the plaza, you know, was all boasty. You know, even when he lost it and was obviously in bankruptcy, he was boasting like he wasn't, you know. Yeah, which, which makes, I mean, sometimes I think that on television and in our coverage of Trump, even though it's been going on for years, we, we need to have more TV critics and more sports analysts on mm-hmm. who understand that psychology, Yeah, right? Because it's a different game, right? Yeah, it's it's not yeah. a political connection he's making to people. Yeah. It's it's this emotional connection. I'm a winner, and thus you're a winner, no matter mm-hmm. what. Even if they right. say we're not winning, we are winning. You know, I wish I hadn't thrown away the day he sent me one of those notes he used to send to reporters. Like he would uh-huh. take a sharp and he would scrawl an angry note <laughs> if he wrote something he didn't like in the New York right. Times. And I think I think I must have offended him by not praising the Apprentice ratings enough. Because he always claimed the Apprentice was number one. It was winning, even when it was sagging terribly in the ratings. You know, to the point where NBC was ready to let it, let the show go. But his narrative that he was a winner um, it stuck more than the reality. Yeah, you know, it's so funny this. I'm I'm trying to think I'm I'm stepping back a little bit and not and getting rid of my you know just normal disgust with Trump and trying to look at this you know from that globally but I'm thinking about like Elia Kazan's movie Facing the Crowd you know things like mm. that or or 1984 the Orwell thing and just thinking about how Trump is using media and messaging and medium to gain power and to and to uh interact with with policy even, you know, and I feel like our, have we been critiquing him improperly this whole time? I think, I think that's what you're getting at and what I'm getting at. And it's, mm-hmm. it's, you know, there's certainly been a, a lot of wonderful coverage, but this is a layer that I think hasn't, doesn't mm-hmm. get explored deeply enough. Um, yeah. Like for example, let's take the Republican convention and the visuals of the convention. Right. The visual of the convention was I can do whatever I want. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, the Hatch Act is irrelevant to me. Uh, the blending of personal and professional is irrelevant to me. Agreed. I can do whatever I want. Yes. And um, maybe that was the message of the convention more than more than mm-hmm. law and order or Joe Biden is going to scare you. And I, and this is my relationship to you. I can do these things. I'm able to accomplish that. And the critique is the Hatch Act. He's not supposed to be doing that. It's illegal. But that's not what's going on. It's not like right. his base is involved in that kind of discussion, you know? Right. But here's the pushback, I think, which is he's impulsive. He's obsessed with himself. He's obsessed with his ratings. He's obsessed with his popularity. And, and most of this is just driven by that. And that's what's fundamentally broken about the Trump years. One of my favorite chapters in Hoax is about the first full day in the Trump White House. Trump wakes up, turns on CNN, sees a segment at 5, I think 5, 19 in the morning 
where they are talking about his crowd size and they point out that Obama's was bigger Mm -hmm. and nothing of his could be smaller than Obama's. And so he loses his entire first day of his presidency to this stupid story um, that he made into a big deal because he freaked out and he called Mm -hmm. Sean Spicer and then Sean Spicer called CNN and yelled at CNN. And, you know, now it's a national story. And it was all because of a segment at 519 in the morning. And, you know, there's 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 no strategy to that. <laughs> there's no there's no grand visual communication strategy right. to that. That's that's just impulse and narcissism. Yeah, and irresponsible too. A waste of a day, a waste, yeah, totally. Completely. So here's what scares me about of your book too, is is what how the government is actually being run, you know. So are I want to know what you're actually suggesting here or what you're saying. <laughs> Are you saying that the government is actually being run by Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, Laura Ingram, whoever these people are at Fox News that are and Fox and Friends? Are they actually running the government right now? I would say they are advising the government in a way that that there's never been before. He's certainly, you know, Trump picks his own people and installs his own aides. But he's getting the ideas for who to hire and who to fire from Fox. He's picking talent sometimes um, from Fox. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I have a story later in the book about Morgan Ortegas, who was a Fox News contributor who became the State Department spokeswoman. And on the day that she was named State Department spokeswoman, she was kind of annoyed because my headline for CNN and all the other headlines about her new job, they focused on her Fox role. They were it was basically like Fox News commentator becomes State Department spokesman. And she's thinking to herself, I was a U.S. Naval Reserve officer. I I was an intel analyst at Treasury. I was a public affairs official for USAID. But but the reason why she got the job is because of Fox. Uh Trump saw her on TV, told Bill Shine that he wanted to hire her. Bill Shine was in charge of getting her to come on board. Fox News was her interview process. Uh And... uh, you know, obviously, there's there's not enough people to hire from Fox to to to, um, to staff an entire federal government. But but when you do that dozens of times, you do start to create this Fox News administration that is so heavily influenced by the network. And even more so than that, okay, there's an overall influence of those talking points and everything, but also there's this very personal connection to Sean Hannity, yes, who. Yeah is more than a wingman or go to you, you describe as almost another wife, you know, for Trump or whatever, you know, uh, or he's treated like that or whatever. Like what, how much influence does Sean Hannity actually have? Is he, is Trump listening to him or is he just, I, I don't even know how to describe it. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm very concerned about that. Is he getting policy cues from Sean Hannity? He, he is. Or just he's- a pat on the back about his audience. He's definitely getting cheered on. He's definitely getting boosted. He definitely uses Hannity to vent the way that I might vent to my wife, for example. I don't want to, you know, uh, imply that happens too often. But I think everybody in your in your personal life, you need people who you can talk through something with. You can you can vent to. You can um, can chew over an idea. You can mm-hmm. figure figure something. And he does use Hannity for all those things. That's why I compare him to Melania because he's, he's he does use Hannity for all those things. Like, do you think he, he's trying to work out policy sometimes when he's talking to Hannity? I, I, I you know, the, the, the extent to which the president's talking about policy, uh, <laughs> that, that I think more often he's talking about his grievances, talking mm-hmm. about his obsessions. Right. For example, what does Fox do in June? They start showing old video of riots from weeks ago. 
you know, they're showing the looting in New York City from June 1st, and it's June 15th. And I'm thinking to myself, no little label in the corner of the screen is enough to end up, you know, um, making this ethical. They are misleading their viewers, making it seem like New York is a hellhole, a wasteland, you know. Uh, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, the president, June, July, now August, is absolutely focused on this law and order narrative. Um, where the cities are burning. He claims the cities are burning. I'm not claiming this. We don't have challenges in Seattle and New York and right now in Kenosha. Of course, there, there, there are some, some difficult situations. But the president portrays the country in a way that is not accurate at all. He's getting it from what he sees on Fox. And when I say Fox, he's really getting it from the primetime shows. He's really getting it from Hannity. Hannity creates these narratives that are terrifying. And the president eats them up. So some of it is happening through the television, and then some of it is happening behind the scenes where Hannity is talking, you know, going through talking points with Trump. They talk about what guests to book. It is a, it's a, there's never been a relationship like that between a president and a TV host before. And put it that way. Where do, and where does Tucker Carlson fit into all this? Um, huh. Because That's interesting, seen- t- Tucker is not, Tucker, so if Hannity is mm-hmm. calling Trump proactively, mm-hmm. Tucker is the guy who, he won't call the White House, but if the White House calls him, he'll answer. Mm-hmm. That, that, that's the distinction, I think. Is it true that he visited Trump in Mar-a-Lago to get him to be serious about COVID? He did in March. On March 7th, a White House aide asked Tucker to go to Mar-a-Lago and mm-hmm. get one-on-one time with Trump because there was so much concern in the White House that Trump was not understanding the gravity of the situation. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, you think back to the first week of March, this is when we're starting to use a lot of hand sanitizer, you know, mm-hmm. but people are still going to the office, a lot, of, a lot of people. And Tucker was one of the only voices on Fox raising the alarm about COVID mm-hmm. while others were downplaying it. So, and Carlson deserves some credit for that, even though he said a lot of outrageous things about COVID since then. So he was asked to drive from the, he has a house or he has a, I guess a condo over on the other side of Florida. So he was asked to drive over to Mar-a-Lago, go see Trump and talk some sense into him. And I don't think it worked right away. It took about a week before Trump started to change his messaging about COVID. But even that kind of meeting, that's, you know, that's right. uncharted territory. When, yeah, since when do news anchors go have a private meeting with the president trying to talk sense? And how dare Fox do something like that and all the accusations they talk about, you know, politicians of the left cozying up to the elite <laughs> or that type of thing. Right, you're saying that... uh the charges of collusion, the yes. charges of uh, coziness between the media yes. and the politicians and, and the elites, yes. they are all real at Fox. That's right. Uh, Laura Ingram has been at the White House repeatedly this year to, pu- mm-hmm. to push hydroxychloroquine. Ugh. I described those meetings uh, toward the end of the book because I think that's, that's, um, that's one of those stories that really mm-hmm. actually affects people. Right. Yeah. Wh- okay. Where did that come from? This whole obsession with hydroxychloroquine, and how did that become a political football? Like, who was <laughs> was that? Did that? Did Fox pick that up from somewhere? And and then because of that, they pushed it onto Trump, or did Trump pull it from them? Like, how do you know how that first kind of started? I haven't really gotten into this in interviews. So I'm glad you're asking because this is mm-hmm. a really great case study about mm-hmm. how information gets from yes. the, the fringes over to Trump. So exactly. this starts this starts on a um, on a Google Doc. Somebody, mm-hmm. this blockchain investor and his friend and attorney created a paper on Google Docs that looked mm-hmm. very official that pitched hydroxychloroquine as a COVID treatment. Mm-hmm. And this pops up in mid-March. And then a couple of days mm-hmm. later, Laura Ingram books the lawyer on her show 
interviews him, makes it sound pretty legit. Tucker Carlson books the lawyer two days later, uh-huh. and then Trump mentions the drug. So we, within a week, this Google Doc paper that's, you know, actually Google took it down eventually because it, it wasn't scientifically um, sound enough to uh, meet their standards, but it was enough for Trump. Trump mentioned it after it was on Fox a couple of times. And then the, the quote from Trump that is so scary, he says, it's been around a long time. Sorry, I can't do Trump's voice. Um, right, it's, so been around, it's, it's been around for a long time. And if it doesn't help people, at least it's not going to kill anybody. And, and of course, there yes. was a very real risk of death from, from careless so uses of this drug. I mean, my wife takes hydroxychloroquine, a version called Plaquenil, because she has rheumatoid arthritis. There are millions sure. of Americans that rely on this um, specific drug. Right. And there he was, you know, promoting it. F- Fox had dozens of segments about this drug. And uh, Laura Ingram still talks about it like it could be a miracle cure. Like what? I don't understand their obsession. I mean, is it that they're just presenting this as a culture war that here's something the left doesn't want you to know. So we are the people who are going to tell you to fight the left. That's definitely an aspect of it. It's Uh it's they're they are all saying that we are wrong. Uh (laughs) They are out to, to, to suppress the truth. It touches on free speech issues. It it touches on the sense of conservative censorship. Um, mm-hmm. but, but I think hydroxychloroquine's narrative, I think, is largely is mostly about saying there are ways to there, there are ways to manage this virus. There are ways we can get out of this. Mm-hmm. Um, Trump can lead the way on this. Like it's a way to give people hope. But unfortunately, what every scientific paper says is it's false hope. It's such an odd thing to Brian. This is one I don't get because. <laughs> It need not be. I mean, it could have easily have been said, look, here's a possible, not cure for for this, but this could possibly aid some people. Like why it wasn't presented as that, which I think people would have just accepted. You know, why would someone be against that? But it became, to me, this fight between the right and the left that I I hate political fighting about COVID. I really hate that type of stuff because how this became a political thing is so yeah. weird. And and one of the other things that I noticed Fox was doing, it seemed first, and then it seemed like Trump picked up, and you can tell me this, is the kind of uh, putting their, their, uh, their uh, putting up their hand against Fauci and Burks and yes. that team yes. and presenting them as maybe, uh, and maybe because the left was fawning over them and they were using that what they considered fawning as somehow they were tools of the left that they needed to be suspicious of. And it seemed to me that the president seemed agnostic about them at first. This is just my observation. The way he presented them, I didn't notice anything. But then there was a clear relationship he started to have with them that maybe was jealousy. Was that something you think, was that another example of this Fox relationship kind of, you know, put unto Trump of how he should be treating these people? There's definitely been an anti-Fauci narrative, a why are these experts better than us? Why do we automatically right. trust what they say? Yes. And, and, and the yes, way that's these, often- Why are these experts better than us? Because they're experts. That's why. That's why they're better. <laughs> but, but, I, but I think the reason why that's so, it's so appealing to the audience is, you know, or, 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 or what, the way that, they, that this narrative is advanced is to say- well, here's one mistake this person made once before. And thus, you cannot believe right. them now. Or thus, you should be really Crazy. skeptical now because, because they made a mistake before. 
But Trump can make millions of them. But it doesn't but, matter. But, but, right. right. And, and so part of this is about deflection, right? Part of this is about creating diversions or distractions so that they don't have to talk about Trump. <laughs> I think uh-huh. a lot of what happens on Fox is on the, on the, um, on the propagandistic talk shows is right. It's about just changing the subject. Uh-huh. I, one of the, one of my favorite quotes in the, in the book is from a commentator at Fox who says, when you're with Tucker and Sean and Laura one-on-one, they won't defend Trump. They'll just tell you how bad Democrats are. Right. You know, they'll just, they'll just shift the, the conversation. It's, it's what Gary Kasparov has described as this. Everyone does it propaganda where uh-huh. if you're a coward, you say someone else is a coward. And you know, if you're a thief, you accuse them of being thieves. And if you're corrupt, you accuse the others of being corrupt. It's just what about ism all the way down to, to, to hell, I guess. I mean, the latest example, of course, is Tucker Carlson giving cover for this 17-year-old with this assault rifle who, you know, which is clearly a a terrorist act, if you will, or whatever, but should not be condoned or anything. But to give cover for that, no reaction from the president, you know, he, he doesn't pull back on that at all. I'm sure the president probably admires that kid too because Fox seems to admire him or whatever. I want to go pull up the exact quote. What did Tucker say? He said, how shocked are we that 17-year-olds with rifles decided they had to maintain order when no one else would? I'm pretty shocked. I don't know about you. I'm pretty shocked. I'm pretty shocked a 17-year-old felt he had to take it into his own hands. You know, but it seemed like Tucker was justifying the violence. Uh And as Twitter filled up with comments from people saying he should be fired, he should be punished. What I was thinking to myself, having just researched this book, was Lachlan Murdoch's not going to do a thing. You know, Fox Fox knows that they've signed up for, and the audience is so addicted to Tucker Carlson's show. He's even beating Hannity in the ratings sometimes. You know, um, Tucker is almost untouchable. Yeah, I wonder if uh, um, Fox, of course, independently existed for Trump. Now they seem to be for Trump. If Trump loses, let's say, does, where does Fox go? I mean, do they go back to the kind of Hannity going against the thing or are they following Tucker Carlson into this apocalyptic left scenario and adopting that type of identity? It's, it seems like those are the two crossroads for them. Right. Right. And, and part of what's happened with Fox is it is a reflection of what's happened with the GOP. And as you mentioned, talk radio and others have also had responsibility for this, a very, very dark view of the country, very pessimistic us versus the the rest of the world, um, white Christian conservatives versus yeah. the rest of America. We are under threat. Whiteness is under threat. Like I know that the folks on Fox never use these words, but these this is the this is the message that is conveyed by this programming. And I don't know how you turn around from that to a more positive, hopeful, inclusive vision. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope somebody there knows how. <laughs> but my my impression is that. Uh, Staffers at Fox feel they are um, more, uh, life is better at Fox when they're on the uh, offense against a Democrat. It's easier. Maybe it's more fun. Uh, maybe it rates better. That's always been the conventional wisdom at Fox. Um, if, if Biden is elected, we know what to do. We know how to be. We know what to say. In some ways, having to defend Trump and uh, deflect from his scandals and crises is kind of a lot harder and less fun, right? Yeah, as you it's so point cynical. Out, I hate to say that. It's so cynical. No, but as you point out, it's easier to be against something 
than you know, before. like Obama, that, yeah, than for something that isn't good, <laughs> you know, defending that, you know. Well, that's why I thought it was so important to, to say in the book that Hannity does tell his friends about Trump's problems, like does mm-hmm. describe him as crazy. I, I've got executives and anchors saying like, this man doesn't seem to be well. I wish he would watch less TV. The problem, Larry, is they're only saying this stuff anonymously, right. you know, they they're not sharing it with the public. They're not going on. They're not changing what they're saying on TV based on what they're feeling privately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a lot like these White House aides, these White House aides who leak to reporters, and they you know they they put out these anonymous warnings, but then they don't they don't speak publicly. I feel like uh, Shep Smith, like his days were numbered once uh, Trump came along and all that type of stuff. And you know, Megyn Kelly was kind of a turning point. I felt like she made a mistake by leaving Fox. I mean, but maybe she had no choice, you know. But I I felt like it would have been better for her career to be kind of the the voice, mm. you know, kind of not going along that party line of Fox. And she could position herself in kind of the middle from the right, you know. But when she went over to the mainstream, she really had no home, it seemed like. Like, there was the voice type of thing. But she mm. also changed the balance at Fox in primetime, where you go from Megyn Kelly to Tucker, that's a huge change. Yes. Yes. That's another example of another turn to the right. Yes, exactly. Um, I mean, it really just just completely tilts. turns further to the right, but but also reflecting what the audience wants. And a lot of this is on the audience, um, as well as on the producers and the executives. Megyn Kelly is a fascinating figure. I wrote a lot about Megyn because I view her as the first journalist at Fox to look around and say, I can't do this. I can't do the Trump years. I'm not mm. going to fit in here. Like I won't be able to do what they're going to want from me. And, and what I mean by that is edging more and more toward propaganda. And do you think that's because of how she was treated when she was engaging with Trump during that time? And she yes. was being called about yes. what the fuck are you doing? And that type of stuff. And, and Trump is retweeting people calling her a bimbo. And Trump is, right. you know, is, is, I mean, my gosh, she had to go to Walt Disney World with bodyguards for her family because of all the threats. Like, I know that there's a lot uh, to criticize about Megyn Kelly, but she, as a, as a character in this story within Fox, Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, she was an early warning of what was going to happen mm-hmm. where it was, you could never be Trumpy enough. You, you could never be, um, yeah. sycophantic enough. You're always going to be expected to do more. And look, she also had personal reasons for wanting to leave Fox. She didn't like having to work until 10 PM at night. It was sure. bad for her family. There yeah, were all those but- reasons, but a lot of it had to do with looking around and saying, I can't, I can't be the person they're going to want me to be in prime time. And so she goes to NBC and we know that like that uh, went down in flames. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, you, 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 Megan Kelly in 2017, Shep Smith in 2019. Mm-hmm. And in between there are dozens of people at Fox who say, I can't take it anymore. And Shep is just the best known because he basically surprised everyone by quitting on the air. Yeah. But I had staffers there say Shep was, was trying to wait out Trump. You know, he, he couldn't work at state run <laughs> TV anymore. He, he felt so vulnerable. Uh-huh. He, um, and this gets back to a lack of leadership, by the way. You know, it, it, most of what running a television network is about is talent management. Yes. You know, you, you know a thing or two about, you know, you know there are executives mm-hmm. who really know how to work with talent and Absolutely. there are those who don't. Yeah. And I don't think that Shep Smith felt supported by the management. And is it Lachlan? Is he the one who actually is running Fox News, Lachlan Murdoch? 
He's the CEO of Fox Corporation, so Fox the, the buck stops with him. So who's uh, the Roger Ailes right now? Who's that person? Suzanne Scott is the CEO of Fox News, uh-huh. reporting to Lachlan. And uh, and she was a, a Fox News lifer. She was there at the beginning. She was an assistant who worked her way up to producer and vice uh-huh. president and eventually was one of Roger Ailes' lieutenants. She's never really talked in detail about what she knew or didn't know about Ailes' abuse. Uh-huh. She says she doesn't know what happened in his office. Um, but there are people there, of course, who are skeptical of that. She had to take over this this ship. I don't want to say it was a sinking or leaking ship because the network keeps making more and more money every year. But editorially and ethically, uh, it was a a sink with a ship with a lot of holes in it. And I think she has done a lot to improve uh, uh, morale in terms of you know new offices, um, new workplace diversity initiatives, uh, new ways to call if you are harassed by an employee, by, by, a, by a boss. Like she, she did make some legitimate changes at Fox that are worth mentioning, but people there don't feel like she's a strong leader. Uh-huh. And that's a lot of the reasons why people were leaking to me was they, they felt like there's not that sense of management, strength, and leadership at the network. And Ailes had a direct relationship with the talent. Does she have any relationship with the Hannitys or the Carlsons or that type of thing? It's a hands-off relationship. I mean, especially with the biggest stars. And and look, I mean, you got you got these guys. You're paying these guys ten million, fifteen million, twenty million dollars a year to perform every night. Sometimes your job is to stay out of the way. I get that, but when they are going on the air and uh, spreading conspiracy theories, or in this case, perhaps this week, justifying violence in Kenosha, um, you would think that it would be in Fox's interest to have an editorial, to have some guidance, to have some accountability for what happens on the air. And, and you, know, you know what happens in these situations, right? Some people blame one person, other people blame other people, like Suzanne Scott's friends blame another woman named Mead Cooper, who's the executive vice president for prime time. But then Mead's friends point back to Suzanne. Like it's, it's the typical infight you get at a corporation. But it matters because Trump is being influenced by this stuff every day. Uh, I know, I know. I wish I had like a really positive story to tell you, Larry. I'm trying to. No, I, I, I agree with you with this. And what always amazes me, too, is that Fox, rightly so, in the beginning was, you know, an outlier. It was the underdog. It was, you know, trying to do something different. But Fox for 20 years has had the biggest audience, the most viewers, and yet they still insist that everything else is mainstream media. How is Fox not mainstream media? I know, it's so cynical. Aren't they the the actual definition of mainstream media? The most mainstream media. You know, during the Republican National Convention, Fox's ratings are beating the broadcast networks combined. That's the definition of mainstream, right? Oh, the most mainstream of all. But they don't don't seem to feel they have a responsibility. Uh And that's, that's what really gnaws at me as someone who works at cnn a place that you know we i make mistakes people make mistakes every news Mm -hmm. outlet makes mistakes but at least we have a standards and practices department at least we have a checks and balances system so that when i do make a mistake i'm held accountable you know uh Mm -hmm. once in a while a journalist needs to have a tough conversation with their boss to to make sure that they're they're being very careful being very thorough that's the whole point of, of this business but fox doesn't have one of those departments Mm -hmm. doesn't have that kind of standards and practices unit um, it doesn't have some of the same journalistic resources that people might think they do. Like, I'll give you a specific example about the pandemic. Fox doesn't have a bureau in Asia, so they don't have any reporters in China. Uh-huh. So when CNN and the New York Times and others were going to Wuhan and trying to find out what the hell was going on uh, with the pandemic, Fox was just talking about the pandemic. And ultimately, that's not good for Fox's viewers. 
like, I, I think I would argue to you that there should be healthy, strong, conservative news outlets in the country with reporters and bureaus and standards and practices. But that's not what Fox is. Mm-hmm. That's not what they have. And perhaps that's a reflection of what the audience wants. Perhaps the audience just wants shouting and not reporting for substance. But we are all worse off for it mm-hmm. because the president watches, he gets bamboozled, he gets lulled into a false sense of security. He thinks the threat has passed from COVID in February when in fact thousands of us are getting sick. I feel like when you say we're all the worst off, I think yeah. it, that that statement has a lot of different layers to it as well, because I, mm. I don't think, I think all of news is not better off. I mean, is worse off because of it. I mean, if we not to, for you to criticize your own network, you know, but many times to me, CNN just becomes what Hannity was to Obama in some ways, you know, where, also, well, it seems like when every, so much of the commentary starts with anti-Trump, you know, it just starts with that, <laughs> you know, like the, the point of view is to, is, is, is starts on the side against him, you know, whether it's, you know, the way the stories are framed or told or whatever, and mm. not saying that I don't disagree with them, but it seems to start from that side, you know, mm. as we are, don't worry, honest, we are the protector of this guy, Trump from you. Don't worry. We are here to make sure that, that, you know, exactly what's going on. Like even when the, during mm. the, uh, and I'm being, you know, as I am contrary and overly critical sometimes. I know? like it. I'm but, in it. I like it. But even like when the Trump speech is going on, CNN thought it was their duty to protect us, you know, so they have to have the fact checking going on underneath the speech. And I'm like, <laughs> OK, CNN, well, thank you. But I don't feel that's your duty during the speech. You know, I don't know if you did that during Biden's speech, you know, but, you know, if I think if there had been as many smears and distortions during Biden's speech. There would have but, been fact checking during. The but speech. that also is a point of view because they knew ahead of time they were going to do it, you know. But I, I'm just saying the position is they feel it's their duty to do this for the president, which is fine. I don't disagree with with fact checking. <laughs> I'm just saying what they've been. This is the position now that they're in is mm. like somehow they must protect us against this or do this, you know, mm. as opposed to what you normally do is after the speech, people tell you and that type of thing. But to do it during the speech, I found curious, you know, I think I think it's being done during the speech because the the counter argument to what you're saying is don't even air Trump live at all. You know that he treats words like they're worthless. You know that he lies to the public in ways that are dangerous. Just don't even air it at all. And so the I guess the middle ground is if you're going to air it, at least put up a graphic that tries to uh, warn viewers. Or the president is speaking at the convention, you air his speech. <laughs> right. These, these are the two he sides. Is the president. That's right. Yeah. So you, you are now taking the, uh, I believe, the conservative view. Just run the speech no matter what. No, I say your commentary comes afterwards, but I'm saying when it runs during it, to me, yeah. that that's now seen as in the position they must protect us during this speech. We are not allowed mm-hmm. to watch it on our own first. That's really, I think and, that's really interesting. I don't view it yeah. as protecting, but I think that is a very interesting way to frame it. Yeah. I, I think we need to make sure that what we're doing is just audience centered. Yeah. And when I say that, I mean, what is best for the audience? Right. You know, it's, it's not that we are supposed to be these self-important, pompous, defenders of truth but we are supposed to fact check and we are supposed to make clear what is real and what is what is fake so it should be audience centered and it should be open-minded 
I love what we talked about earlier about the, um, what do the visuals say? What are people taking away from this? Journalists have to continue to have an open mind and ask, how are, how are Trump supporters viewing this? How are Trump detractors viewing this? Uh-huh. Um, if I, you know, I know there's, a, there's, this, there's this cliche in journalism about interviews with Trump voters at diners, right? And uh-huh. uh, so, stop, you know, liberals say, stop, stop going to diners interviewing Trump voters. <laughs> and uh, Fox well, and Friends loves to do this. They have a, a segment yeah. called Breakfast with Friends, which yes. um, they, they make sure they have lots of Trump supporters at the diner for those broadcasts. I'm of the view I cannot get enough of those. I, the more diners, the better. I, uh-huh. I, you know, I can't get enough of those stories about both Trump supporters and his detractors and everywhere in between. I'd like more features about voters who don't care that much, sure. <laughs> people who don't vote. You know, the more that we have the voices of the audience, the better. We we need more of that in journalism and less of the uh, the. I know that I'm sometimes one of the people yapping on TV, like uh-huh. less of the talking heads. Yeah. It's very interesting dynamic, you know, it's very interesting. Uh, the last thing I'll say, and thanks so much, Brian, I really appreciate uh, your book is fascinating. Like I said, it's Thank a page, page turner, you guys. It's thanks. because there's so many more, as you're reading it, the weight of it kind of dawns on you of the consequences of this type of relationship, you know, and that's mm. what I mean, that it's going to take us years to look back in this and really, you know, be able to know how this has you know, kind of <laughs> changed us for the better or the worse, you know. I know. I, I feel like my kids aren't going to believe it. You know, my, uh, yeah. I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and, and like, they're gonna, like, dad, you're saying that the president just watched TV and just read the banner and just tweeted the lie that was on screen. And <laughs> yes, then, yes. and wait, dad, dad, yes. you then went on TV and you talked about that lie. Like, yeah. what were you doing, dad? I, I it <laughs> And one of the, one of the more visual uh, demonstrations of how we're so divided now. It's like, like Trump could be speaking or whatever the news is going on. If you turn to CNN, they have a ticker of how many people have died from COVID and, you know, all that stuff. But if you go to Fox, it's a ticker of the stock market, you know, <laughs> like it's like, wow, I hadn't know, even thought of that. And, and to me, it just shows the divide, you know, wow. it's like, wow, one is counting the money and the others counting yeah. the bodies, you know, it's like, wow. what, what are we caring about right now? And what I is did, the you emphasis? Know, I did notice, yeah. I did notice there was a point in the spring where, because in March, Fox did have the same graphic as CNN with the coronavirus yeah, and they count. stopped. Yeah, that's right. There was a point where they stopped. I should go back and see when exactly that was. That might be good for the paperback edition of Hoax. See, there you go. I added something to Hoax. I got to add to the acknowledgements too. <laughs> Brian, thanks so much for being on the back in the air. Guys, go get Hoax. It is a page turner. I only have like the PDF. Would love a signed copy of Hoax, maybe. <laughs> hint, hint. I'm going to drop a book plate <laughs> in the mail to you. But, uh, and watch reliable sources, you guys. Uh, Brian's always good. Good way to start your Sunday mornings and that type of stuff. Good luck with the book, Brian. Wishing Thank you, you so much. Thanks, Thanks again. Brian Stelter, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>